Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. If you're uh, following along in your bulletin, you can find the text printed there on pages 8 and 9. If you'd like to follow along in a pew Bible, it's, our passage is found on page 945. It's a pretty extensive text today, and I'll be asking you to kind of look at things in it, so I encourage you, um, you're welcome to listen, but also it's helpful to see what's there as we walk through Paul's argumentation this morning in this section. As we've been following along in the uh, book of Romans, Paul has really taken us on this long, amazing hike up to this top of this mountain view of the amazing grace and love of God for his people. That's where Romans 8 took us, right? And we heard those amazing words that God is for us and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and nothing can separate us from the love of God. But then from that mountain view, Paul then comes down to address a very practical question that we began looking at last week as we started chapter 9. And the question really is this. These words of God's love and these words of God's promise are wonderful. But as Paul looked around and he saw many of his Israelite brothers and sisters who were rejecting the gospel, it raises a question for him. God has said he loved people and promised things to people, including Abraham and the way he would bless his offspring. And if you look around and you see a number of them not embracing Jesus as the Messiah, if you look around and you see them under the thumb of Rome, or even as we look around today, and we see a very similar thing with many children of Abraham not trusting in the Messiah, and even right now involved in a horrific conflict in their land, it makes us ask a question. Is God faithful to his word? Can we trust his promises when we look at what's going on around us? And for Paul, and uh, the situation of his kinsmen was a central issue to what he was thinking about. And we saw last week how he had deep anguish in his soul and great sorrow over the state of his kinsmen who were not trusting in the Messiah. And even today, as we stand and sit here in Escondido, we've been hearing in Romans how God has promised unshakable, inseparable love to his children. And yet, we live lives that often feel far different from that love, don't they? Even as we gather here today, many of you are suffering in very great ways, both in body and in soul. And life is not going how we thought it would. And life doesn't often feel like God's blessing and God's love. And people that you love are rejecting the gospel and maybe turning on you even as you trust in it. And it raises a question. Can God be trusted? Can we trust his promises of love, of care, of blessing, of salvation. Well, in our passage today, Paul is saying, yes, he can be trusted. We could just stop there, but there's a lot that he says to prove it. And he lays out this intricate argument 
showing that God has always perfectly kept his promises, but often we haven't understood his ways. That's part of the experience of life walking with God. And what Paul is going to do this morning is he peels back the curtain and he shows us things about God and who he is and what he does that are hard for us to even comprehend. I'm going to warn you up front, these are things that are hard for us to wrap our brains around. But while they may stretch our finite minds, the wonder of these things is they also still our uncertain hearts. Because what they show us is the absolute faithfulness and free mercy of a God we can trust. And so that's what we're going to see this morning as we look at Romans chapter 9. And so let me read our passage, Romans 9, uh, verses 6 to 29, and then we'll pray and ask for God's help. Hear God's word. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people I will call my people, and her who is not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, 
we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So far the reading of God's word, and it's given for our good. And so let's pray and ask his help this morning. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us to come to your word humbly, to hear what you have revealed about yourself. We pray that you would give us faith to believe things that are really beyond our understanding. And most of all, we pray that you would help us to come to better understand you and your ways, especially as you have revealed them to us in sending your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we could become sons and daughters of the living God. We ask for your Spirit's help in all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to look at this passage in three points. And so um, I'll, I'll give them to you as we start, and then I'll repeat them as we go along. First, God freely chooses his children. And then second, we'll look at the justice of God's free choice. And third, the purpose of God's free choice. So first, God freely chooses his children then the justice of God's free choice, and the purpose of God's free choice. So first, let's notice what Paul says about how God freely chooses his children. The first reason that Paul says God is faithful to his promises is because his promise was never that every ethnic Israelite would be saved. And in fact, all throughout the Bible, Paul says, those who are physically descended from Abraham, those he calls children of the flesh in verse 8, are not necessarily children of God. And then he cites two historical examples. Um, And these may be familiar to you, maybe they're not. Uh, They would have been to um, the Jewish believers in Paul's audience for sure. But first, he gives the example of Ishmael and Isaac. Now, with Ishmael and Isaac, both were Abraham's sons. But God chose to bring the blessings of salvation through Isaac and not through Ishmael. Now, one could argue that the reason God decided to do that was because Isaac was Sarah's child and Sarah was Abraham's wife. And Ishmael was conceived by Hagar, the Egyptian, who was Sarah's slave. And so Paul says, Let's go on and continue to consider the history and think of this next example, the example of Esau and Jacob. They were both conceived by the same parents, Isaac and Rebekah. And in fact, they were twins. This is an amazing thing to think about. They were conceived of in the same act. They were growing in the womb at the same time. And yet God revealed to Rebekah while they were still in her womb that the older, Esau, would serve the younger, Jacob. And then Paul goes on to cite Malachi chapter 1 as if saying, and look, that's exactly what happened. Verse 13 says, As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And as I said, that citation from Malachi 1, and there's a particular context there. But what's important to know are a few things. One is this hated language is not language of emotionally detesting something or someone. We use the word hate like this a lot. Sometimes we may tell our kids not to use it this way. 
whatever. You can decide how you want to do that in your own home. Um, but we could say, I hate certain foods, right? I hate soup when it's warm outside. Um, anyhow, that's something I just need to get over with. Um, or we may say we hate or despise a person, right? And we know that that's like a sin that we need to repent of. This hatred language is not a sin on God's part, and it's not his heart disposition toward them, which scripture also fills out the love that God has, even for those who are rebelling against him. But this love-hate language is significant, weighty language, because loving, as it's used here and in the context of Malachi 1, is choosing to covenantally love, to covenantally save and bless and protect And hating is choosing not to do that. And so here in Malachi 1, it reminds us that God chose Jacob for blessing and not Esau. And so all along, Paul says, God has chosen some and not chosen others, even among Abraham's relatives. And so what we see as we consider this and as Paul explains it, is that God's choice is free. It doesn't depend on us in any way. Now, kids, I'm wondering if you could help me with something here today, because there's a question that's on my mind. Um, I'd like it if you could help me by keeping track of how many times I say certain words. I'm going to try to not say them too many times. I'm not sure what the number is. We'll find out afterwards if it was too many or not enough. But here are the words I'd like you to keep track of. The word free, and so if you don't know how to spell free, you could just put an F in one column, and the word sovereign, and I don't know how to spell that, so I can't help you. So No, I I actually do, but you could just put an S. But this morning, we're going to talk about what Paul says about God's free choice, meaning nothing is making him do something. And we're also going to use the more theological word of God's sovereign choice which means nothing can force him to do something and he has absolute control to do what he wants. Some of you have already started counting. You can start now going forward to keep track of those things. But they mean both basically the same thing. But I think the word free uh, may be helpful for us as we all track with what Paul is saying. Notice what Paul says in verse 11. Jacob and Esau, before they had even been born, or done anything good or bad, were chosen in God's mind and not chosen. What Paul is saying here is your relatives don't automatically make you God's child. But he's saying even more than that, your works don't make you God's child either. And part of what he's saying is that it's not even that God looked ahead and saw the good things that you would do or the bad things that you would do and because of that decided to choose or not choose you for salvation. Verse 11 goes on to say that this is all in order that God's purpose of election might continue, in order that God's free and sovereign choice would be what he works out in history. And so God's electing choice is free. It's not based on anything in us. But Paul also says that it's often surprising, actually. God choosing Esau over his younger brother, or God choosing Jacob, sorry, over his older brother Esau was a shocking thing. 
And as we heard in our scripture reading this morning, God's choice and calling of us for salvation is surprising and shocking to the world. It's never been because of anything impressive in in us. It's actually the opposite. God has designed salvation in this way so that no one can boast about anything in themselves or anything that they have done when it comes to their standing before God. And so God freely chooses his children. Well, what are we to do with this? What are we to think of this? I know for some of you, these may be things that you've known for a long time. I know even as I was looking at this passage, and and these are things that I have embraced and found so much comfort in throughout the years, I was reminded of the weightiness of these truths this week. And so what should this do in us as people? Well, I think it does at least two things. It humbles us and it comforts us. And let me just explain First of all, God's free choice should humble us. You know, as we go through Romans, we probably find ourselves as good church people smiling and nodding and agreeing with Paul. It's usually good to agree with Paul, right? (laughs) When you come to church especially. Um, And we're nodding and agreeing, saying, yes, salvation is all of grace, and it's not because of anything that we do. But these verses remind me that it's amazing how much at the end of the day, when we're all alone and we really contemplate these things, that we deep down think that it somehow depends upon us in some way. And we think that there's something about me, there's something about us that nudged God to save us in some way. Maybe it's our godly heritage. Maybe it's the relatives that we have and how much we've come to church. Maybe it's that we even understand Romans 9 and can say all the theological things about it. Maybe it's the good works that we have done for God that nudged him before the foundation of the world to say, I will show my mercy to you. But you see, Paul says, you haven't really fully understood grace until you realize that God did not save you because of anything in you at all, but only because of his free, merciful, loving, and surprising choice to show you grace. And so it humbles us. Sinclair Ferguson says that this truth, it strangles any sense of superiority that we may feel toward other people. It flattens us before God at the foot of the cross in a way that's good for us. But not only should it humble us, but it can also comfort us. If salvation is about us in any way, then what happens? We're back on the performance treadmill. And if we think we're doing well, we're delighted. If things aren't going well, we despair. You see, God's sovereign saving choice assures us that it's not anything about our performance that merits his blessing. And that's actually, at the end of the day, a very comforting thing. But it goes further than that. Many of us have loved ones who don't know the Lord. And we can feel all kinds of things about this. We may have all kinds of questions. We can feel all kinds of guilt If only I had said this. 
did I really do enough? Did I bring up the gospel enough? Did I show love enough? Parents, you may have children where some are walking with the Lord and some are not, or maybe none are walking with the Lord, and you can find yourself racked with guilt over, what did I do wrong? While there are always things when it comes to dealing with people and parenting and loving our neighbors that we could have done differently. And maybe there are things we need to take an honest look at and repent of and and seek to change. But ultimately, our loved one's eternal destiny is not in our control. This doesn't take away the grief. It doesn't take away the pain. It doesn't take away the rightful heartache. Paul feels unceasing anguish in his heart as he looks and he sees people he loves rejecting the gospel. But you know what it does? It calls us to bring those concerns and to bring those cares and to bring those griefs to the only place that can rightly bear their weight. Not to the things we've done or not done, but into the lap of our sovereign God who knows so much more than we know, who loves them more than we will ever love them, and who's also our loving Father, who's the God of all comfort and can truly comfort us with his free mercy. And so Paul says that when you stop and you look around and you see that not all Jewish people are saved, this isn't because God has failed to keep his promise to Abraham. All along, his plan was being accomplished by his free choice of showing mercy to some and not to others. Now, if you're listening, that should create a tension. Do you feel it? I, I think a lot of you feel it. I can see it. Uh, I feel it as well. Is that right? Is God just in doing this? And so Paul goes on to explain our second point, the justice of God's free choice. The justice of God's free choice. He raises that exact question that I think we're all feeling in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is it right and just for God to do this? And then he goes on to answer it. By no means. That's the answer. But he tells us four things that help us understand what God justly or rightly does. And I'll try and move through these rather quickly, even though they're all weighty. First, God justly shows mercy to some sinners. God justly shows mercy to some sinners. In verse 15, Paul shows why it's not unjust of God to choose to show mercy by citing what God said to Moses. It says, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion. The context of this quote is Exodus 33. And do you remember what's happening in Exodus 33? We made reference to it even last week. But the context of this citation is where Moses is pleading on behalf of the people after what? after the golden calf. These people have just completely broken their covenant with God by worshiping an idol. And so what this reminds us of is the context of this quotation is not referring to people as neutral parties 
or people as blank slates. It's referring to people who are sinners. People who have all sworn, all that you have spoken we will do. And then when Moses goes up on the mountain, they fashion an idol out of gold. And what Paul is saying is it's not unjust for God to choose to show some mercy upon sinners and not to other sinners. And what Paul has been showing all along is that it's not just the people of Israel who bowed down before a golden calf who are sinners, but that all of us stand before God as those who deserve to be condemned because of what we have done and even what we have failed to do. And so God can justly, this is the good news of the gospel that Paul's been unpacking, God can justly show mercy to sinners because Jesus came and bore the punishment of sinners. And so God can be both just and the justifier of the ones who have faith in Christ Jesus. So God has the right to choose to show mercy to some, but he goes on further and then secondly says, God justly hardens some sinners. Not only does God justly show mercy to some sinners, but God also justly hardens some sinners. And Paul cites the example of Pharaoh who was opposed to God. And the Exodus narrative all throughout this story of Pharaoh says that Pharaoh hardened his heart against God as he refused to let the people of Israel go. But you know what the text also says? It says twice as many times that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And Paul says this too is ultimately just because God has the right to justly punish sin. And one of the ways that God justly punishes sin is what he already unpacked back in Romans 1, where he hands sinners over to their sin to experience even more of it. Here he calls that process the hardening of their hearts in rebellion against him. And what it means is that in ways that further God's saving purpose of his power and his name being made known, he justly chooses to harden some sinners in their sin. And verse 18 really summarizes this. God rightly has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. But this brings us to another objection, right? And you feel it. If God is that sovereign, that he's showing mercy and he's hardening, then can he really blame us for our sin? And if you're wondering that, Paul says, you're getting what I'm teaching. This is what the scriptures say. And notice what he says in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And then he says our third thing. God justly holds us responsible. God justly holds us responsible. His answer is really a bit surprising. It it can set us back on our heels, really. He says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What Paul essentially says here is that question has gone too far. But I think it's really important to know this. That question has not gone too far because God can't handle the question or because you can't bring that concern or that care to him. But it has gone too far because we in our finite understanding can't fully grasp how this works out. All of scripture agrees with this, 
that God is completely sovereign. Remember, kids, that means nothing can limit him. He's completely in control. And yet all of Scripture also affirms that he rightly and holds people, rightly and justly holds people responsible for what they do. Those two things, even though we can't reconcile them in our logical minds, are actually true of God and his ways and how things really are. They just go beyond our ability to understand. And so Paul says God justly holds us responsible, and then he goes on to explain it even further using a well-known biblical image. In Jeremiah and Isaiah, there's this image of God as the potter molding the clay. And he explains our fourth thing. God justly shapes our destinies. God justly shapes our destinies. He says the potter takes clay and he chooses to use some of it for honorable use. And that honorable use means fashioning it for decorative, maybe delicate things. Something you put on display as like artwork in your home. But some of that same clay he shapes into vessels for dishonorable use. And what that means is commonplace pots or vessels that have a different purpose in the home. And what he says is this, the clay has no right to say to the potter, why have you made me for this and not for that? To question the skill and the purpose of the potter in fashioning as he has chosen to do. What Paul is saying is this, it is God's right as our creator to shape our destinies however he chooses. And it's also important to remember that he's not just speaking about some potter who whimsically decides what he's going to make and not make, but that God as the potter is the all-wise and even all-good creator. And so that everything that he does has to somehow be good and not sinful. So Paul argues throughout this section that even though it's hard for us to comprehend God is right and he is just in showing mercy. He's right and just in his hardening. He's right and just in holding us responsible for what we do. And he is right and just in shaping the destinies of people like you and me. That's weighty, isn't it? And so we ask... What should we do with this? And again, I think we find that what Paul is calling us to is that it both humbles and it comforts us. These truths humble us with the limits of our understanding. Part of what Scripture is doing, it is, it is teaching us how to think and how to speak of a God who is far beyond us. In reality, when Scripture brings words to us about God and who he is and what he does, it's like a parent speaking baby talk to a child. We're grasping at concepts, but our understanding of the world and how things are is so small and so beyond. And so even though we can't fully understand it or reconcile this in our minds, 
God is absolutely sovereign, and yet we are responsible for our actions. And truths like this, they present us with a choice. Will we really humble ourselves before God's word of how he has revealed himself and who he says he is and how he says things really work? And will we seek to come to know and love and worship God as he has revealed himself? Or will we continue to cast God into who and what we think he should be? And scripture chips away at our pride of saying we must understand and control everything and says, actually, this is how God is. What will you do with it? And so it humbles us. But even more than that, I think it's, it's really important not to lose sight of the comfort of these verses. You see, many of us may have come to Romans 9 in the midst of profound theological debate. You can go on YouTube. I'd, I'd advise you not to. Don't learn theology from YouTube. It's very scary. Um, we can point you to helpful resources, but I'm actually really serious about that. Um, wow, sorry, YouTube took me off. Um, Paul's point is not to create a YouTube video. It is uh, about some philosophical debate about God's knowledge. That's not why Paul's writing these things. Paul's point is to reassure Christians at Rome and to reassure you today that God can be trusted. That's what Paul is unpacking. God is completely trustworthy when it comes to his promises. Well, why do you say that, Paul? Well, think about what he's been saying. God is completely trustworthy because he's completely free to choose to show mercy to whomever he wishes. Nothing about anything in you compelled him to do that, and nothing about anything outside of you compelled him to do that. And God is completely free to use the actions of wicked people like Pharaoh who may rail against him and shake their fist at him and seek to do harm to the people of God. And he is so strong and wise that he takes their wicked actions and he can suppress and subvert them into ways that proclaim his glorious name and extend his mercy throughout the world. That's the amazing rock-solid confidence and comfort that we can have that, that nothing can shake God's love for us. And even now, in all the things that assail us, in all of life's difficulties and hardships, we come back to the comforting hands that we are in the loving hands of a potter who is fashioning our destinies for the glory of life with him. And even everything that wages war against us is still under his sovereign shaping hand being used for his purposes. Do you see how even though on the one hand it's so scary and so humbling, on the other hand when it's paired with the news that God is for you, his sovereignty is one of the most comforting things we could ever trust. And so many things about God's ways are beyond our understanding. His free choice the justice and rightness of all that he does. But Paul wants to make sure that we understand our third point, the purpose of God's free choice. The purpose of God's free choice. Will you look with me at verses 22 and 23? What if God, 
desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Paul says this, you notice in verse 23 that in order to make, it's a, it's a purpose clause that he's, that's at the center of, of what Paul's saying. He says, God has reasons for why he is doing things this way. We won't understand all of those reasons, this side of glory especially, but Paul says, I, I want you to understand one of them. And he does so with this what if statement. What if in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? This passage doesn't exhaust for us the reasons why God freely chooses the way that he does. But one of the reasons, Paul says, that his right and just judgment that he has upon those who have rebelled against them serves as a backdrop against which the riches of his glory shine for those whom he has actively prepared from eternity to be recipients of the glory of God, those upon whom he has chosen to show mercy. You see, Paul wants us to understand that as baffling as all of this may be for us, the purpose of God's sovereign workings is an overwhelming glory for those whom he has shown mercy. My kids like to use these apps that are paint-by-number apps. Some of us who are older may remember doing this on paper, because paper can do a lot of things screens can do. And so you know how they work probably, right? It's this black and white image, and it has all these lines on it and little numbers, and then you find the particular color that's associated with a number, and you fill in the colors, and then what happens? You zoom out, and digitally, it's just amazing how you can do this. You zoom out, and you see how all these different shades of color have been woven together to this multicolor image that's just far beyond what any of those little circles or dots that you were coloring um, have produced. And one of the things that I love about the app is when you're done, you can hit a button, and it shows you a video replay of coloring all those colors and just seeing it happen as it, as it speeds it up, which is really great. It also doesn't let you put the wrong color in the wrong thing, which I find very helpful. So uh, super relaxing, and maybe you'd enjoy it. Paul has zoomed in today, and he's had us look at some of the darker colors of an image that we find in Scripture, right? Um, things that are hard for us to understand, Things like God hardening people and things like God not choosing and words like destruction. Things that in our limited understanding so often feel unfair or unjust or rightly even break our hearts. And you see, our experience as finite creatures, I think as we encounter those darker colors, is to say, Why doesn't God just choose to paint without those colors? Why doesn't he just somehow in his justice and in his power eradicate evil and do away with the suffering and take away these things that are so hard for us? But what Paul is pushing us toward understanding is that the God that we worship, who has shown himself to us in the Lord Jesus Christ, is one who is so beyond us and so wise and so good 
that he takes even those darker colors and he weaves them into this greater picture that when one day we zoom out and see it for the glory that it is, we will see the beauty and the wonder and the fittingness of a God who could actually take such dark things and we could agree with the preacher of Ecclesiastes that he makes all things beautiful in his time. And as that coming together of that tapestry happens, it is something that will replay throughout the ages. And you know what's at the center of the theme of that picture? Paul says it is the glory that has been prepared for people like you and me upon whom God has shown mercy by sending his son so that we could come to know the glory of living with this God forever. Paul wants us to see that purpose that even deals with these dark things that are beyond our ability to understand. And the good news of that is that that's right where Paul goes. He, he brings it right to where we are, to the wonder of what God has done and what God is continuing to do. He goes on to say that those vessels of mercy, in verse 24, even us whom he has called. If you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ today, this is all true of you, both Jews and Gentiles. And what he says is he just finishes out this section, and I'll just do so briefly, is that all along, God has been doing this amazing thing of taking people who are not his people, whether they were Israelites who rebelled or Gentiles who were far off, and making them his people. And what God has been doing all along is taking those who, because of their sin, do not deserve his love, and in Christ calling them beloved and making them his children. In Isaiah, he says, foretold that there would be times, like in Paul's day and like in our day, where the number of believing Gentiles would far outnumber the believing Israelites. He's going to explain why this is as these chapters continue. But there would be times like this. But the amazing news is that although we, if left to ourselves, would all become like Sodom and Gomorrah, deserving of God's judgment, But God, by his free mercy, has always been preserving an offspring, children through the work of Jesus Christ. That's what God has been doing all along, and that's why we can trust his promises, because we are safe in God's free mercy. And so what is your response today? It's interesting that the call of Scripture is never for you to sit here and say, am I elect? Has God chosen me? We're never called to contemplate that question. Instead, the call of Scripture is this. Look at how God has revealed his heart to you in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to this world, who took on flesh, who lived a perfect life, and who died a sacrificial death, so that you could receive the mercy of God. What is your response to this work of God? What is your response to this Jesus? The unassailable, unshakable promise of God 
is that if you turn in faith and trust to Christ, that you are a vessel of God's mercy and glory forever. For those of us who have already experienced the mercy of God in Christ, these truths should do a few things to us. They should humble us and they should comfort us, as we've said, but they should also motivate us, shouldn't they? A love this great, a grace this wonderful, a mercy this free makes us long for other people to know it. And it sends us out, not needing to frantically manipulate because we trust in God's sovereignty, but like the word of God that came to the Apostle Paul about the city of Corinth, he said to him, there are many in this city who are my people. And he wants to use us as we lean upon, as we are thankful for the grace of God, that we could be people who communicate to others what it can be to be safe in the mercy of God's free grace. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask for help. We ask for help as we wrestle with these things. We pray that you would chip away at things that are wrong within us, whether that's our pride or whatever that may be. We pray that you would comfort us in the sorrow and grief we have over those whom you haven't chosen. We pray that you would meet us and comfort us. We pray that you would strengthen our faith in your goodness and love and unshakable promises. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.